Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Welcome to episode 26 of Odeon Capital Conversations. We have lots to talk about from our domestic and global economies and our markets everywhere. The strong dollar across the globe continues to raise questions and some alarm bells overseas and at home. Housing is in the news with signs of weakness here in the US. Signs too of trouble in the auto sector, says Dick Beauvais. We'll have lots more research and analysis from Dick, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group. Dick will be telling us about the banks and Fannie Mae and why Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan has ripped into the Fed. Dick will also talk about the bank's strategies in the months ahead, why JP Morgan is planning to shrink. I'm with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon co-founder and managing partner, and we'll be right back after this break. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome to episode 26 of Odeon Capital Conversations. Lots to talk about. Uh, we're getting a heat wave up here in New York, Dick. I don't know what it's like down in Florida, but you're always used to fine weather, I know. Actually, the weather here is uh, the temperature is lower than it is around the country. So Florida has become the place to go if you want to cool off. Okay, we might be down with our lollipops. Yeah, which is surprising. <laughs> this is this has been a hot week, though, in the market, because basically the banks have started coming out with their earnings reports, and it's created a really vigorous debate in the sense that uh, they're coming up with all of these uh, very, very positive uh, outlooks for uh, where the economy is going. Uh, and, and, uh, well, I should step back. There are two types of banks. There are banks that are tied into the capital markets like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan. They do uh, a lot of trading, a lot of investment banking. Th- those banks, you know, they, they send out signals that uh, the markets aren't doing that well. But the, the other banks that, that are more traditional banks, which just lend money, t- take in deposits, lend money and try and get the highest margin possible. I can't believe what they're saying. I mean, they're so positive. Uh, in their conference calls, th- there's actual debates opening up between the CEOs of these banks and the analysts because the analysts simply don't believe what the CEOs are projecting. For example, uh, Bank of America said that in the uh, third quarter this year, their earnings will be a billion dollars higher than they were in the second quarter. And then he said in the fourth quarter, 
they'll get another billion dollar, you know, uh, increase. Now, I don't think he means above the third quarter. I, I think he means above the second quarter. But he's saying that in the second half, there's $2 billion in earnings there that uh, weren't there in, in the first quarter. PNC Financial, which is this Pittsburgh bank that uh, is all over the uh, central area and southeast of the United States, you know, Bill Demchek, who is the CEO there, said, I expect to make a billion bucks, you know, in the, in the second half, more than I made in the first half. Then, you, you know, you go to Wells Fargo, uh, Charlie Sharp, who's that CEO. He's, he's basically saying, I don't care whether the economy goes up, down or sideways. With the increase in interest rates, it's going to bring in, he didn't give a billion dollar figure, but it's going to bring in hundreds of millions more in profit. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter who the bank is. Truist today, which is a same, same story. Everything looks great. The CEO, Bill Rogers was the CEO there, has just come back from Nashville and uh, Miami. And he said both towns are just, you know, percolating. Things are really going strongly. And then, you know, finally, uh, the CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs, he's indicating that uh, he doesn't see how they're going to bring inflation down very easily because business is just so good everywhere. So uh, these guys are making me think whether peaking of inflation statement is correct, making me think about the recession statements. And essentially, the stock market seems to have made the decision that uh, they're going to go with these positive statements because 500 points, as we're, we're speaking right now, it was up strongly yesterday until the end of the day. So I don't know. I mean, uh, it, I, I've never heard so many bankers so positive about so many things in the US economy as I'm hearing in the last couple of days. But there are still some storm clouds gathering, Dick. You mentioned how their deposits were shrinking. And now we had Jamie Dimon ripping into the Fed, which is an entirely separate issue. So is it the rising interest rates that plays into all of this? Or what's the underlying factor? The economy may be in better shape than we imagine. Yeah, well, that's that's what's playing into it uh, on one side. And the interest rates, as, as you mentioned, John, are extraordinarily important on the other. I mean, basically, American companies, you know, about a year ago, uh, when, when we were talking about supply chain disruptions and all those other factors, went out and started buying inventory everywhere as much as they could find it, number one. Number two, uh, they, they discovered that every time they went out to buy something, the price was higher than the price, the prior purchase. And so they decided that instead of buying, we'll say 50 units, they bought 200 units because they didn't want to deal with, you know, the higher prices, you know, a couple of months from now. So the net effect is their buying of all of this inventory resulted in this huge increase in lending by the banking industry. You had 9% increase in commercial loans on a year-over-year -year basis. And a year and a half, two years ago, commercial loans were going down. So you take that, which is a big kick to bank earnings, and, and you then say, okay, what are they getting on these loans? Well, we're in a situation where the interest rate is going up because the Fed keeps pushing it up and is supposed to keep pushing it up more. So they're getting higher and higher prices on the product that they sell, which is the loan. They're getting higher prices on their sale product. If you go to the other side, they're getting rid of deposits because they don't want them. 
In other words, the, the, the deposits are just not doing what they had expected the deposits would do, i.e. getting invested in high-yielding loans. They were being invested in low-yielding securities. So because they're not pushing for deposits, the rates on deposits are not going up. The price on loans are going up. The rates on deposits, in other words, the cost of the raw material is not going up. The price of the product they're selling is going up. They're selling a heck of a lot more of the product that they sell, and, and, and they're ecstatic. They're just ecstatic over where they see things going. They're not saying to themselves, well, maybe these guys are going to cut back on inventory. Well, maybe there's a problems with autos. Well, maybe housing is going to weaken. All they can see is higher rates, higher sales of, of loans to co companies, and, and they're, they're very, very enthusiastic. Okay, Dick, I apologize if this is a naive question, but when you look at the Atlanta Fed, they have the real GDP tracking data they put out weekly, and it shows that the Q2 GDP shrunk in real terms by 1.5%. Correspondingly, inflation clocked in officially at 9.1%, so my back-of-the-envelope math says that, that the economy grew in nominal terms at 7.6%. And so when you listen to these conference calls and everyone's optimistic and bullish about how things are going, are they only looking at that 7.6% growth and kind of not recognizing because we haven't had such high inflation since the 70s that that in real terms, it's not that great, but in nominal terms, it looks fantastic because things are, are clipping along at a really accelerated pace, albeit um, tampered or dampened once you account for inflation? Yeah, no, you're right and they're wrong, all right? In other words, uh, you know, I, I gave you what the bankers were saying. I didn't give you what the uh, analysts kept saying, which is, uh, you know, you basically uh, not increasing your loan losses the way you should. You know, you don't have enough capital based upon the new capital rules that came in. You're making uh, two, two uh, positive series of assumptions concerning what's going to go forward. So we, we've got the yin and yang, so to speak, of, of, this, uh, of this argument going on. And, and what you say, Matt, is exactly correct. What they're not doing is they're not realizing that, you know, not only is this inventory building not likely to be long-lived in nature, but it's be that the, the, they they lend money in nominal terms. They don't lend it in real terms. So they're ecstatic. They're happy. They're saying everything is great. The analysts who are questioning them don't believe a word that they're saying and, and are basically saying, uh, you know, in essence, we don't see how you can continue to do this, particularly if the Federal Reserve, you know, continues to do what they claim they're going to do. So it's kind of really fascinating to see which side is going to prevail here. In terms of what you're saying, I think you're exactly correct. You know, basically, inflation is picking up the numbers. What the bankers don't see, and, and U.S. Bank Corp., the CEO of that bank, Andy Ciceri, I, th I thought made a really dumb statement uh, in, in his comments because he didn't recognize that, that inflation is decreasing the value of the assets that he's acquiring and that that lowers the multiple on his stock. But at any rate, your comments, the, the Fed comments, the analyst questions are being ignored by the market right now. They're taking the bank's comments at uh, full full force, and, and they're pushing stock prices up very, very aggressively. Even even Bitcoin is 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 uh, rising rapidly at the present time. So maybe this will carry forward. But I mean, Truist announced this morning 
that it was not going up as high as Bank of America. Bank of America is now paying, uh, you know, the lowest paid person in Bank of America makes 25 bucks an hour. Uh, Truist just went up to 22 bucks an hour. Fifth Third is sitting somewhere around 19 and 20 bucks an hour. So, so the net effect is that money is going to come into the economy, whether it's going to be all inflationary or push the economy, it's hard to say, but it's hard not to get enthusiastic when one company after the other keeps making these incredibly positive statements. And at the same time, housing is weakening. There's an auto bubble out there you're talking about. Consumer spending showing signs of slowing. Commercial real estate risk is growing. And the National Association of Home Builders CEO, Jerry Howard, this morning came out with a forecast of a housing recession. So set against all of that and the optimism of the banks, it's just hard to reconcile both. Well, that's right. And that's why it's so much fun and why it's so much so, so interesting because, um, you know, as, as, as you know from all these past uh, podcasts, I see a recession coming. I see inflation peaking. I see a slowdown. Uh, and I see the recession being moderate and, you know, very strong recovery. Uh, but what these guys are saying is that the recovery is already underway. It's pretty hard when, when the CEO of Bank of America gets up and says, hey, look, you know, the deposits in, in the accounts of my customers continue to rise. You know, the, the, the employment levels are, are very good. Spending may be backing off a little bit, but it's still very strong. Our business is booming. Uh, and then everybody else gets up and says, yeah, but it's not going to stay that way. Well, I, I don't think it's going to stay that way either. But you really have to stop and consider that they might be right. And if they're right, then this, this gloom and doom that I keep pushing and others keep pushing may, may not be correct. The one thing that I believe will come out factually from this situation is that inflation will be very sticky. Solomon from uh, Goldman Sachs, he said uh, very clearly that, you know, he thinks that inflation is really sticky. His conversations with companies are suggesting that it's going to be sticky. Again, we, we've got a real conflict here in terms of what's going to happen next. Uh, I'm, I'm sticking with the recession. I'm sticking with the peaking. But gosh, you, you can't ignore what all these guys are saying because they're not, you know, they have huge economics departments. They have huge resources. They have contact with people in the communities and, and they're, they're, they're ecstatic. They're booming. You noted the auto bubble in your notes. So how serious could that be? A lot of auto repossessions in the months ahead? No, I'm not saying this will be, able, you know, yeah, unemployment is really low, right? And people are making more money. You're not going to repossess the cars of people who have a job and are making uh, increases in their income. Uh, you may sell fewer cars because right. you oversold the number of cars, uh, you know, in the, fast, in the past few weeks. And by the way, it was actually one of these bank presidents who said that, uh, not me. So I'm just I'm just pirating what he said. But uh, no, I, I don't see a bunch of repossessions occurring. You know that that that's not. But but certainly an auto bubble forming. Quoting some other industry figure here. Yeah, it, it, I think that he's right. That by a bubble he meant that prices of autos are likely to come down, and I think that's true. You've also looked at the various bank strategies in the months ahead. It's important to take a note of this as they're 
bullish and optimistic. They're looking at where they're going. You say JP Morgan is going to shrink and Wells Fargo going to focus on margins, not growth. Two banks. Okay, well, let's start with JP Morgan because that one is really fascinating and it has some very long-term implications for the economy. Jamie Dimon w was trained under Sandy Weil and um, I I've had the opportunity to be in some meetings with Sandy Weil, uh, you know, decades ago when he was trying to take over Bank of America. He's a very volatile guy, right? He is just, you know, he can have a screaming fit uh, or he can be the nicest guy in the world, right? But, you know, he has, he always had someone who he thought was the smartest guy in the room, right? You know, it used to be Peter Cohn. There was someone before Peter Cohn, but Jamie Dimon was his newest guy, right? And Jamie Dimon had to be as tough and as hard and as volatile as uh, Sandy Weil was in order to uh, get to the position that, that he did. What is Jamie Dimon's character? Well, Jamie Dimon is a very strong-minded individual, and he has no problem in, in stressing what he thinks. And he thinks that the stress tests, different than stressing, the stress tests of the uh, Federal Reserve are excessive or incorrect are arbitrary, are capricious, uh, and are not reflecting the real world, right? And because it's coming from the Federal Reserve, whatever they tell, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan, it has to do, J.P. Morgan has to do it. I mean, this is no free enterprise uh, situation. If the Federal Reserve says to a bank, this is what you're going to do, then the bank is going to do it. Uh, and if they don't do it, the Federal Reserve will cripple them. Um, so, so the net effect is the Federal Reserve is told it's got to bring in more capital again as a percentage of assets. And Jamie Dimon thinks it's a totally uh, arbitrary, uh, unsupported by economic, uh, you know, analysis decision, but the bank has to get its ratio up. So there are two ways it can do it. It can add more business and increase its equity by maybe selling stock to the public, or it can shrink. And, you know, what he said he's going to do is he's going to shrink. Uh, and he said that he's going to get to his uh, ratios in that fashion. But he then indicated that if the bank shrinks, you know, that, and again, he's volatile, so he may return, you know, to, to a more moderate statement. If the bank shrinks, that it's going to have a negative impact on the economy because the bank is not going to be making as many loans as it normally would have. And then the second thing is he pointed out the industry where they were going to shrink, and that was going to be housing. In other words, they were not going to originate as many mortgages as they had been originating in the past. All right. So now, you know, he may do this. He may not do this. I think he will do it because, you know, he, he's made similar statements about FHA and he did follow through there. But let's think about what this means. You know, JP Morgan is the second largest mortgage originator in the banking industry. Wells Fargo is the biggest mortgage originator in the banking industry. Wells Fargo is saying the same thing for different reasons. In other words, the Federal Reserve went to Wells Fargo and said, you know, we're capping your assets. You cannot grow your assets, all right? And this, I want to talk about this strategy in a, to, to a greater degree. All right, they're saying we're going to cap your assets because you were bad guys, you did bad things a couple of years ago, and they did. They did horrendously bad things, and they deserved to, to, to be 
to be uh, criticized, fined, regulated more heavily based upon what they did. All right, so they're sitting here today. They can't raise their assets. So that means they can't aggressively go out into the market and, and get a lot more loans. They have to increase the margins on the product that they have. All right, now you take a look at a mortgage. A mortgage is a fixed rate loan. You make a 30-year mortgage, you may sell it, you may hold it, but it's a fixed rate. You take a look at a commercial loan. A commercial loan is a variable rate loan. It, it is tied to LIBOR. So if you want to increase your revenue without increasing the size of your assets, you better get rid of your mortgages and you better start picking up a lot of commercial loans because as interest rates go up, the revenues off the commercial loans will go up immediately. The, the, the revenues off the mortgages don't change at all. So if you take a look at, at the balance sheet of Wells Fargo, you, you're seeing a situation where Wells Fargo has now gone from 25% of its loans being commercial to 40% and 31-32% of its loans being mortgages down to 26%. So they're shifting, they're shifting. The other thing that they're doing, which is off the beaten path for this discussion, is they're pushing their credit hard loans really hard because credit card loans will get you 10, 12, 14%, and there's no other loans that will do that for you. All right, so now we go back to Jamie Dimon. I don't want to make as many mortgages because I want to shrink my balance sheet to get my ratios in effect. We look at Wells Fargo. I don't want to make a lot of mortgages because basically, you know, those mortgages have very low yields, particularly in a rising interest rate environment relative to the commercial loans. Okay, so now you say, okay, well, if you two guys aren't going to make these loans, number one and number two, bank mortgage lenders in the United States, who's going to do it? Well, the mortgage bankers would normally do it. But the mortgage bankers, you know, are, are in trouble because the Federal Reserve said, we don't want to buy mortgages anymore. And the mortgage bankers were feeding them these mortgages. So the mortgage bankers can't feed them the mortgages because the Federal Reserve is not buying them. All right, so what does that happen to the mortgage bankers? Well, they fire thousands of people, which is exactly what they're doing right now. They shrink the size of their businesses. And if they don't have a big loan servicing portfolio, they might actually sell a company or go out of business. All right, so now you say, okay, big banks don't want to make these mortgages. Mortgage bankers can't make these mortgages. What about the Fed? Well, the Fed, as I said a moment ago, saying, I don't want to make these mortgages. I want to sell them. So I'm going to be selling these mortgages. So the net effect is you then say, well, who else is there? Well, Fannie and Freddie are there. But Fannie and Freddie, they can't make the mortgages because their capital is being limited because they're owned by, the, in, in, in essence, in, in reality, they're owned by the U.S. government. So who's going to make the mortgages? Well, I don't know. And if we can't find the people who are going to make the mortgages, yes, that, that state you made, statement you made earlier, John, about going into a housing recession will be there in spades. And it'll get worse than that because the demographic demand is increasing to make mortgages and the marketplace is not going to be making them. 
And that's going to create social unrest and social upset. And hopefully it's going to make the government realize that their socialism in housing finance is wrong and that they've got to release these companies to the public. But it's a really interesting situation, again, because Wells Fargo, I ain't making them. JP Morgan, I'm not making them. Mortgage bankers, I can't make them. Federal Reserve, don't ask me. I'm going to sell them. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, where am I going to get the money to make them? So what's going to happen to housing? It's likely to go down. And that's going to create a problem for an economy which, if these other guys are right, is, is booming. Interesting, Dick. So, so just to be very clear about this, you're saying that these big banks are going to concentrate on higher margin business. And so therefore, though, that lending on the mortgage sector will, will be diminished. That will be a lesser part of their business. Can these banks give variable rates? Well, they can, but do you want to take a variable rate? No, as a borrower, <laughs> no, you want to fix, clearly. But, exactly. I mean, somebody's exactly. going to be pushing the variable rates, surely? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the banks do have them. I mean, you can get a variable rate mortgage if you want it right now. But uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, consumers, the, the statistic is, is, I can't nail it down, but it, it appears that somewhere between 75% and 80% of the Single-family home mortgages in the United States, outstanding, are fixed-rate mortgages. To, to assume that we're going to move over to variable rate uh, or modified rate mortgages, uh, which Matt discussed last week, it's a reasonable assumption to make, but the banks don't have to do that. The, the, right. Fed, is, the Fed is sitting there pumping up the bank profits every time they have a meeting and they say, we want to go 25, we want to go 75, we want to go 75 again, we want to go 50. Think about, you know, if you're a commercial entity and your loans are tied to LIBOR, overnight rate, federal fund, effective federal funds rate, they just keep pumping up your profits. So why should you go running around making 30-year fixed rate mortgages, you know, no matter what the rate is, because the variable rate mortgages, when they were very common, you had, a, you had to wait a year before you could change the rate. And by the time you had changed the rate, the rate had already gone way beyond you. On these commercial loans, you, you don't have to wait for anything. LIBOR, you know, the Federal Reserve says we're up 75 basis points. LIBOR goes up 75 basis points. Your price of all your commercial loans out there, which are tied to LIBOR or SOFR or any one of these other variable rate systems go up immediately. Then uh, Brian Moynihan at Bank of America gets up and says, we're going to make a billion bucks more next year, next quarter, next quarter. You know, Charlie Sharp says, we, we're going to make a heck of a lot more money, even if loan volume stays set, set because our margin is going to go way up. And this will continue as long as interest rates rise or there are signals of rising interest rates. When that caps or settles, then it could be an entirely different dynamic in well, banking, housing. Yeah, well, yeah. But I mean, what will happen is ultimately consumers will say, wait a minute, you know, I'm paying seven, you know, the, the average rate on a mortgage over the last 50 years in the United States has been just under 8%. It's seven, we'll say seven and seven eighths percent. So let's say the consumer says, I'm paying 7% on this mortgage and you, Mr. Banker, are giving me, you know, 10 basis points on my savings. You know, I'm not going to keep my money with you. I'm going to put it somewhere else. And the banks start to lose deposits and they still have the opportunity to make loans. Then the deposit rate goes up. But that's a couple of years from now. How do you tell, Dick, when, when you say the banks aren't lending, how do you tell 
if you can, that it's supply-driven versus demand-driven because the mortgage rates have shot up so rapidly and housing prices have shot up so rapidly. You know, I have friends that were house shopping and they've changed their mind. They're going to stay where they are because, you know, prices have gotten out of control. And so when 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 we talk about banks not lending, is it is is there a way to differentiate between demand versus supply? Yes, because, you know, banks always want to lend, right? Banks never want to not lend. To say that a bank doesn't want to lend is like saying that, you know, the um, the guys who sell Chevrolets don't want to sell Chevrolets or we don't or the, the semiconductor guys don't want to sell semiconductor. They make money by lending. If they don't lend, they don't make money. So the issue is not whether they want to lend or not. The issue is given the fact that there is X amount of money in the box, where are you going to put it? You're going to put it in a fixed rate mortgage or you're going to put it uh, you know, or fixed rate auto loan, or are you going to put it in a variable rate business loan? And I think, you know, it's clear that they articulated it. Also, we're going to put in a variable rate, uh, you know, a business loan. And, and meanwhile, as you've noted, uh, there's turmoil at Fannie and Freddie, and this is where the housing market could be shored up in, in your view, right? I mean, Fanny, it's firing people, there's disorganization, there's funding issues. They're not firing people. If they were firing people, it wouldn't be so bad. The, the people are walking out the door. Mm. In other words, uh, the turnover at that company at the highest levels is just beyond belief. Because there are better jobs elsewhere. Yeah. You know, it's because, again, you know, I keep railing about socialism in the home finance industry, but think about what it does to this company. First off, it limits the pay that these guys can make. Mm -hmm. If you're working for Fannie, you're making less money than the other guy in the mortgage sector working for a bank or for, well, now he's not working for the mortgage company either. They're getting fired. But the point is, you can get jobs elsewhere and get paid more. You're not under government regulations. You're not scrutinized by a regulator. You, you're not working for a company that has no control over its destiny, but some you know, bureaucrat sitting at the Federal Housing Finance Agency is telling you what you have to do, and you have to do it. And the guy at the Federal Housing Finance, which is a lady right now, the lady at the Federal Housing Finance Agency has to listen to Congress or the president or the secretary of the treasury telling her what to do. And that's why the system doesn't work. And that's why they're destroying these two companies, uh, because they, they think that a bunch of politicians, you know, can tell, you know, a bunch of bureaucrats who can tell a bunch of people who are supposed to be running a company how they're supposed to do it. Well, that's what they did in Russia. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work here either. And it doesn't work in housing. And we're going to find out how bad it works, you know, when, when you know, people are screaming about why can't I get mortgage money? Why is the mortgage rate over 7%? That's when the crisis will be here. And maybe they'll wake up and figure out, well, maybe these two enterprises were set up to assist the housing industry, not to cut it off from funds. To clarify and to be a little more precise, you're, it's the independent mortgage brokers that have been laying off people and cutting back in originations and in the aggregate control over 50% of the market. Yes, but Fannie Mae, people are quitting. The difference is the mortgage bankers are firing people. The people at Fannie Mae are quitting. I mean, I, I used to have four or five people that I could speak to regularly at Fannie, at Fannie Mae. I've got nobody. Uh, there was only two people at Freddie Mac, they're gone. Uh, you know, they, they just won't work.
you're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. Dick is the Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon and Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. If you have any comments or questions for Odeon Capital Conversations, please email us at podcast at odeoncap.com. That's podcast at odeoncap.com. The dollar has been in the news uh, for months now, and quite a lot of new articles out there talking about the downside of the dollar uh, on the global and domestic economy. Uh, Dick, you've looked at this and we spoke about it last week. Where, where do you see the dollar headed? It, it's been hovering around uh, parity with the euro and uh, hitting new uh, fresh highs against other currencies. Yeah, no, I, th- I think uh, as as we've discussed, uh, we do have, and I think you, you're the one who brought up this term first, uh, but I think we do have a currency war ongoing, all right? I mean, I don't know what the... Uh, European, European Central Bank did today, but they were supposed to uh, raise rates today uh, because um, even though they don't want to raise rates because Europe is supposedly going into a recession, a serious recession, uh, they had to do it because of what you just said, the dollar and the euro are, are, are battling around parity. Other nations, you know, the Swiss raised rates, um, you know, the, the other nations, you know, are being forced to raise rates. And the reason that they have to do it is because the Fed keeps raising rates in the United States. The, the fact that the rates in the United States are so high relative to other countries is creating a flow of funds into the United States, right? But uh, it's not good for these other countries because not only are they dealing with inflation, but they're dealing with the fact that they got to pay more for the dollar. And they got to deal with the fact that there's a, a capital outflow as a result of what's going on. So the net effect is um, it's 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 going to be a real problem, not for the United States. The United States benefits 100% by this thing, but it is a real problem for the, the, the other countries. And uh, I don't know, I, I got involved in a discussion over this yesterday uh, with a client in which uh, I said there's got to be another plaza meeting you know, Plaza Hotel meeting when they all the company countries come together and they try to determine, you know, what the uh, appropriate rate should be for interest in each country and what the appropriate, uh, you know, value of the dollar should be. Uh, I think that's got to happen. And and uh, th- this particular fellow said it, it, it'll never happen because all these countries hate each other now. They may hate each other, but the yeah. fact is, they may hate. They, they the, the fact is that uh, they still have to deal with the fact that money is flowing out of these countries into the United States, and that can't continue. First off, the ECB. I think they're meet, we're recording this on Tuesday, the nineteenth. The ECB is meeting on Thursday, the twenty-first, and they've given official guidance that they're planning to raise. Uh, interest rates by 25 basis points, but there have been a lot of people talking that they might go 50. So it, it's curious to see what they do. I, I agree with Dick that the, the dollar is, you know, it's it's the war, America's currency and the world's problem, um, and and they're reacting to it. But the the reality of the situation is the ECB is in a much worse situation than than even the the U.S. Fed because they have negative interest rates right now, and they have different economies that have different problems, whereas we are basically just one economy and they're going to be raising interest rates at a time when they're the Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, the so-called pigs, their spreads are widening against Germany and Germany 
you know, it's going to be coming into this winter with an energy shortage. And so I think it's entirely possible that you could see the ECB raising rates while also increasing their balance sheet, trying to keep rates down in the pig countries. But I don't know that that leads us to a global war. I think the war that is going to be really interesting to watch is the one that's within Europe itself, because at some point in time, the euro is going to have to figure out what it's going to do. And the ECB is going to have to figure out what it's going to do. And is that, is, does that mean that they stay together? Because you have different economies that are functioning at different rates and you have different balance sheets that have different problems all over Europe. So I, I, I'm sympathetic to Jay Powell because I think he has a huge problem on his hands, but it's not nearly the size of the European problem. Yeah, no, you're, you're so correct. This is crazy to raise rates 25 or 50 basis points when all uh, the economists can talk about is how Europe is going into a, a major recession. You just don't raise rates going into a recession. And as you say, you know, the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, you know, that group of com- countries which were in deep trouble back in 2008 are going to be in deep trouble again if they do, if they keep raising the rates. They can't do it and, and expect those countries to, to, to function uh, in a reasonable fashion. And But they're being forced to do it because the Fed keeps raising rates and keeps pulling money out of Europe into the United States. Who the heck wants to, you know, buy the euro if you're looking at a rate below that of the dollar, you're looking at a currency which is declining relative to the dollar, and you're servicing a series of economies, country economies, that, that, that could be in deep trouble in six months. Nobody wants to do that. So it's really going to be interesting to see how the Fed is going to deal with the fact that they're creating recessions in their allies at a time that Russia is at war in Ukraine. You know, it's it's. I mean, this 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 is a really interesting time. I, would t- I agree with you. It's an interesting time. I take a little bit of a different view on the idea that America is causing um, the problem in Europe because I think Europe is causing the problem in Europe. You know, they they've kept inter- negative interest rates is not something that should exist in a healthy economy, and and they have this war. You know, they're they're next door to Ukraine. And they have a war going on next door, and they've imposed sanctions that are, regardless of what you think, and I'm not trying to opine on the war, but the sanctions they're imposing on Russia are causing a lot more headaches in Europe than they are in Russia. And you can see that in the various currencies. John opened the segment by saying that the dollar is hovering around parity with the euro. Well, that's only true for like the last seven or eight minutes. For, for the last year, the dollar was twenty for the euro. It was the, the euro is getting crushed since Russia invaded. And a lot of it is self-imposed by the Europeans, not the ECB themselves, but by the European political governments, which are trying to punish Russia. But what they're actually doing is punishing themselves and making the job for the, of the ECB a lot harder. If, if you didn't have the war in Europe, then the Fed's actions wouldn't have be nearly as material to Europe, uh, to the ECB as they are. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily the Fed causing all the problems to the ECB. No, no, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, you're, you know, they, they created their own problem, but the Fed sure as hell is making it worse. <laughs> it could make it a heck of a lot worse. But, you know, what, what is kind of, I, I saw, I read something uh, earlier this week, which was really interesting in that regard, because what they, they picked the country of Germany and, and said that Germany has outsourced its defense to the United States 
it's outsourced its energy to Russia, it's outsourced its uh, you know, sale of product to China, uh, and that now it's in a position where all, all of these outsourcing arrangements are falling apart on them, which I guess is true for Europe, and, and therefore, um, you know, there has to be a major ratcheting and change in, in Germany. And since Germany is the strongest country in Europe by far economically, uh, you know, essentially everybody else is going to have to ratchet and change. And so it's, it's going to be a bad time for Europe. And in that bad time, you know, the, the bank is going to raise the rates on them. The, yeah. I, I want to say Germany was the strongest or, or will be was very shortly because, I mean, they, they just had their first trade deficit um, in, I think it was over 30 years last month. And that's not because, you know, they're, they're an export economy. To have a trade deficit for Germany is not exactly a, a sign that their economy is uh, robust and, and gangbusters right now. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Milton Friedman said that the euro would be a failed experiment ultimately. I mean, you said that, Matt, all these economies in Europe, you have the pigs, and thank you for not including Ireland in that, although arguably it is feeding at the throats at the moment, uh, heavily subsidized by Germany and, and European money, and one of the most heavily indebted nations in Europe per capita. And so is Portugal and Italy and all of these countries. They're subsidized by the wealthier members of the EU and Germany being at the helm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're able to export inflation and import deflation or um, disinflation by doing it. The question is when that trade goes, and, I, and going back to Milton Friedman, you know, when that, when that trade-off goes and Germany is no longer benefiting from it, is there the political will to stay in it? You know, I, if you were to compare America to Europe, it's basically, this, basically like saying California has its own deficit financed in dollars, but they don't have any control. Um, Florida has its own deficit, and and Puerto Rico has its own deficit, and all and, and we're all tied together by this by the Fed, who is has to balance it. And the difference here is that we are a political union by choice and by constitution and by government. They are not. And the breaking point they're going to come to, and I think this is what Milton Friedman predicted way back in the early '90s, is they're either going to unite and become a country, and politically you know, have, have the political combination or the euro will be a failed experiment. And I think that that might come a lot sooner than we think. I think it could come as quickly as this winter because um, Germany could be faced with, you know, the threat that they're not going to get any natural gas. You already saw last week, or I think it was yesterday, Gazprom, um, the, 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 the entity that puts the gas into the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is no longer sending gas to Germany because it was shut down for supposedly annual routine maintenance, has declared a force majeure and is no longer obligated, according to them, to deliver natural gas to um, Germany. And alongside that, Canada supposedly is, is fixing these turbines that need to be fixed to, to send the gas to Germany, but they don't want to ship them to um, Russia without getting a waiver. Apparently they've gotten the waiver and President Zelensky of Ukraine has gone a little bit ballistic saying you can't do this. You know, this is the this is the point to apply the maximum pressure. So apparently the turbines are sitting in Canada and everyone doesn't know what's gonna happen. But if Germany loses all their source of energy and they are an industrial exporting economy, they may no longer, you know, you might have to switch the G or add, add another G when we add the I to pigs, so the P-I-I-G-G-S. 
That's a dreadful prospect, but you're right. I mean, all, a lot of these economies work at different speeds. They're not culturally integrated. They're not integrated by language, by history, um, by just their social dynamics. You know, some they're all wonderful countries culturally, but somebody in Spain will have a cultural clash with somebody in Germany. They're, just, they're, they're completely different entities in every way, economically, politically, and culturally. Yeah, I mean, again, it, there, there's going to be a decision point where either they unite politically and fix all these problems or they break apart. And, and you said that could happen this winter, Matt? Do I just think it could start happen. Of, could the start of the breakup of the EU could happen as late as this year or as early as this year, I should say. I don't want to be out there saying that that's my prediction or forecast. <laughs> I think when you look at like what's happening in Sri Lanka and you know the, the rioters stormed the presidential palace and he fled. Um, it's over food, it's over starvation, it's over the basic fundamentals of the economy. Your economy doesn't start with high-end BMWs. Your economy starts with being warm and having food. And mm -hmm. if it gets to the point that Germany can't stay warm because they don't have enough energy or they have to choose between having factories or, or heating their houses, you get to this point where you have tough decisions. I mean, I'm not trying to use this as a guideline of what will happen, but like, look at Ireland and Northern Ireland. Yep. Brexit has caused a huge problem over there. And something that we thought was dead and buried, the Good Friday Accords, have been talked about a lot as something that may no longer exist in the future. And that, you know, that's the peace deal between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, you know, but that could go the other way. I mean, you could see, you, you could also see a reunification of Ireland under a political banner if the, if the Ireland Northern Ireland wanted to leave the United Kingdom. So I, I'm not I'm not predicting in any way, shape or form that Germany is going to have a problem in this winter that is going to cause the breakup of the euro or the EU. I'm just saying that what causes it is going to come from left field. It's going to come out of nowhere. And when it does happen, they're going to be cut, faced with a very difficult decision and they're going to make a swift decision. But when you when you break up a currency, or when like Switzerland depegs their 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 currency, or when Hong Kong dollar at some point will have to depeg, or when when the Japanese bank stops defending the yen, they don't announce in advance, "Hey, this is what we're thinking about," or you know, "This is this is a consideration on the table." They just do it overnight, and then and then deal with the repercussions in the morning. And so I think that is the type of you know, black swan event that I would just kind of be concerned about is that Germany might be faced with making a very difficult decision. And as you say, they are or were the strongest economy in the in Europe. And if they go in to the fall and now they're in a recession, they have an energy crisis, they could have a food crisis, they could have a currency crisis, they'll, they'll be forced to make tough decisions. Yeah, that's why what we're going through uh, and what Dick spoke about last week, having some kind of a new plaza accord to to somehow alleviate the problems we're seeing in places like S Sri Lanka are, are, is arguably very important. But and as you mentioned there, uh, Matt, um, the Ukraine situation, uh, the UK pulling out of the EU, and then the problem with the protocol with Northern Ireland, and that could um, stir up old ghosts. And you know, we thought we had a peace dividend, and that that's in the balance right now. And uh, we don't know where any of this is going to lead. I think that's kind of my point is, is three years ago, I think you could do a poll of just before the Brexit vote, 
-hmm. you could do a poll of all Northern Ireland citizens and Irish citizens, and no one would think that the Good Friday Accord was at risk. And I think now that that poll would be quite different. People are openly talking about what does it look like to abandon that. Yeah, and and we're seeing that throughout Europe or in Scotland for polling for national independence. You know, there's more people want that now. And then you have the situation in Ireland uh, heating up. And then we have the economies of Europe. And then we have the Ukraine situation, rising interest rates. It's it's a very troubling world. Yeah, and I I think the point about Ireland is they have a common history, or you guys do, no offense, um, but not not mentioning it, but you have a common history, you have a common language, you have a common... um, shared geographical space and there's problems there if they can happen in ireland who's to say that it can't happen in germany when they're facing off against the the spanish the italians the greeks the french like they don't have a lot of common history except that they're they have a common history of being at war with each other yeah that's true if if we don't have some stability in the global economies and it, and then if we have a recession coming later in the year, um, throws another spanner in the works. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Dick is Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. Dick, you mentioned about the curse of stock buybacks uh, in one of your notes and how capital is the base of bank earnings. Could you walk us through that? Well, basically, uh, you start a bank by a whole bunch of people investing money in it, and that becomes the capital of the bank. In other words, the the dollars that have been invested in the bank is its capital, and the bank has the ability to lend that money to uh, people who want to uh, get involved in who knows what project, but they, that's, how, that's the base of lending the money. But in addition, they, you, the bank uses that capital to borrow money itself. In other words, for every $1 you invest in the bank as a, you know initial uh, entrant in the, in, in the company, uh, they can borrow 11 from the public. So uh, you, you take that $1, you multiply it by 11 more, you get $12, and then you can, lo- you can lend the $12. If you shrink the $1 to 80 cents, and you're still uh, limited to that 11, if you uh, multiple on the 80 cents, you've reduced the amount of money that the bank can lend. If you reduce the amount of money that the bank can lend, you will basically have a slower growth rate and earnings just won't be what they were as if you had kept that equity in the bank. So what is a stock buyback? What a stock buyback does is it reduces the equity of the bank. And it, when it reduces the equity of the bank, you know, it reduces the amount the bank can borrow. It reduces the amount of money that the bank can lend. It reduces the earnings growth of the bank. There, there are no positives to it. There is zero positives to it from the bank standpoint. But, you know, the stockholders in the bank have uh, a little bit of a different view. And their view is that the price of the bank stock will go up if the earnings per share of the stock go, of the company goes up. So in other words, if they can shrink the bank and basically increase the earnings per share of the stock in the process, 
It's their belief that the bank stock will go up in price. And that's true of every company, whether an airline company, a semiconductor company, you know, a social you know, company, uh, you know, basically, they all believe that by buying back their stock, they increase earnings per share, they increase the return on equity because you have less equity, and therefore the stock prices will go up. Now, you know, I've never studied anybody outside the banking industry in this respect, but it doesn't work in banking. The bank stock price does does not always go up, and we have the last twelve months as as an example of that. Or we could have uh, you know, twenty seventeen when the banks really started buying back stock aggressively. It doesn't go up yet. The the, the demand being made on bank managements is to keep buying back shares. Uh, a bank in Buffalo sent me a note this morning, uh, M&T Bank, you know, saying that I should take notice of the fact that they have increased their stock buyback program and that that imp- implicit in that statement was that the bank stock is going to go up because we're going to shrink the number of shares outstanding. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe that the bank stock price goes up if you're harming the bank. And you are harming the bank if you reduce their its equity. You're hiring this harming the secular growth rate of the bank, you're creating a different present value for, for the bank, and therefore I'm totally against stock buybacks. But it's certainly an issue we're going to watch and look at in future episodes. Yeah, well, I mean, banks, you know, have been buying back their stock aggressively, as have all other companies, because they don't feel that they need to lend it. They don't feel that they need to lend it because people don't want to borrow it, right? Yeah. If if the banks, you know, had multiple potential borrowers, they wouldn't shrink their equity because it'd be far more profitable to um, to lend the money. The, the also, the, I really get upset when people talk about this is a payback to the owners of the bank. It, it, it is strictly in the sense that you're giving people who don't want to own the stock anymore their money back. But I don't see that as a payback to the owners of the bank. In other words, all bankers say, well, we were earning this money and we're giving it back to the bank shareholders. Yeah, you're giving it back to people who say, this is not a good stock to own. I'm going to dump it. And if these guys give me my money back, I can go invest it somewhere else at a higher return. And that's what I'm going to do. So, I mean, the the logic of this whole thing really escapes me. Uh, Although, if you had, as they say, 99.99% of the investors in the world in front of us in this conversation, they would say, you're wrong. If you do this, you increase the return on equity of the bank, and therefore the price of the stock goes up, and therefore you know what you're saying makes no sense. It makes sense to do that. Or they'll say, if you can buy the stock back at a discount to book value, you're enhancing book value, and therefore, you, 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 Beauvais, you're just dead wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think that if they did a thorough study of uh, stock buybacks and, and uh, in the banking industry, that they would find that it really benefits the banks. I, I have two points on that. One, I agree with you that, oh, we're just returning capital to the owners of the company is the biggest lie that is told on Wall Street all the time. It's In my mind, it's either one of two things. One, it's that their cost of capital is so expensive because their stock price is so deflated or so undervalued that it is more efficient to return capital to the shareholders than to invest it in future earnings because the cost of capital requires that. 
Um, I think that's what's happening in the energy industry, for example. But I think the real issue is that if you took away stock options from management portfolios, I think that you would see buybacks would shrink. I think it's more of a game to try to um, goose the value of the stock to reward the stock options that the management teams hold. And I think if you were to do a the study you suggest, I think that's what you would find is that there's a lot of manipulation going on on stock buybacks versus when options strike and option stock option grants are issued. Well, it goes beyond that because boards of directors, when they write these uh, executive contracts with uh, you know the CEO or CFO or whatever of the bank, uh, it's it's based upon the CEO getting the return on equity up. So how does the return on equity go up if, if the business is not improving? Well, you get rid of some equity and the return on equity will go up as long as you keep earnings flat. And then the bank CEO gets a bigger bonus and gets some more stock options and gets, uh, you know, bigger payments. And, and the board of directors get their fees raised. So everybody benefits if you uh, increase the return on equity inside the company uh, if, you know, basically you do do it by growing the business or if you do it by shrinking the number of uh, the amount of equity. So they've they've institutionalized, you know, shrinking, uh, you know, equity, you know, because they get paid more when they do it. Uh, and that doesn't make any sense to me. Either way, it's bad. Yeah. I think so. Dick and Matt, we're almost out of time, but uh, we just want to remind our listeners that if you have any comments or questions or perspective for Odeon Capital Conversations or for Dick and Matt or myself, email us at podcast at odeoncap.com. That's podcast at odeoncap.com. We've already gotten a few from last week's episode, a note from Thomas to Dick. Dick, uh, just a quick comment on using the statistic that 20% of Ukrainian territory is under Russian control. While I agree with your assessment that Russia is going much better than it is portrayed by many in the media, I would not use the 20% number as support. After all, on Armistice Day in 1918, German troops still occupied almost all of Belgium, all of Luxembourg, and were deep inside France. Despite holding significant territorial gains, they had lost the war. In fact, the surrender, despite being deep inside France, gave rise to conspiracy theories in the 1920s and 1930s that were exploited by the Nazis. So I wouldn't read too much into today's 20% and focus more on the trend of gradual gains, which I think is more indicative of the relatively stronger exhaustion of the Ukrainian defenders. Regards, Thomas. Well, I mean, he's obviously correct. It's just, I mean, controlling a lot of territory does not necessarily mean that uh, you're winning. And I think that my view that they're winning is based upon the last part of his comment, which essentially is that they're gradually gaining ground against uh, a nation that is getting exhausted by this war. Uh, what, what Zelensky announced yesterday was, was totally shocking. I mean, he's calling the uh, a number of people at the top of the uh, 
established in the Ukraine government uh, traitors who have uh, been in the pay of the Russians all the time. And one of the persons was his campaign manager when he uh, ran for election to president. That That is really brutal because it means that uh, all of the, you know, top secret, if you will, plans, programs that the Ukrainians have, Ukrainians have, are in Russian hands, and they're in Russian hands as fast as the Ukrainians make the decision. No, I, I, I don't think there's a, a prayer that uh, Ukraine will not lose this war and lose it big. Uh, and the question becomes, what happens after they lose the war? Or how long will it take them to lose the war? But I, don't, I just don't see how they can win. Well, our prayers are with Ukraine and for global humanity. There was a valuable op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. The headline speaks to what you just said, Dick. The West leaves Ukraine outgunned. Yeah. I mean, unless the West wants to put a couple of hundred, as I've said this before, unless they want to put a couple of hundred thousand troops into Ukraine, Ukraine can't win. We also got a note from Nathan Lewis. We're not going to read it out here in total, but uh, he agreed with you, Dick, on your analysis of the gold euro and that whole debate and discussion we had. And of course, Nathan Lewis is co-author of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad and How to Fix It. You know, the, the discussions that we had with uh, Nathan, I thought very informative, interesting, and enjoyable. Uh, and I think that his core point, which is uh, that uh, fiat currencies are controlled by legislatures, which do not show, uh, you know, restraint or discipline, and gold is, uh, you know, by virtue of the fact that you can't increase it uh, too rapidly is a, a controlled, if you will, a monetary, I'm going to call it a monetary unit. And therefore, over time, you know, I think gold, went, gold will go up. I just don't think any country should tie themselves down to being linked to gold. I just think that, uh, you know, if you're going to keep increasing dollars and the gold is going to be measured in dollars, gold is going to go up. But so is in a loaf of bread. Uh, there was a really interesting, I talk about my father and my experience a number of podcasts ago, but there was an article that came out yesterday, uh, you know, tra tracking the price of a loaf of bread uh, and indicating how that had soared in price, you know, uh, and, and I, I'd rather use a loaf of bread than gold. <laughs> the loaf of bread, um, yeah, why not? Yeah, better slice. This this particular uh, report said that uh, <clears throat> two loaves of bread were going to cost ten bucks uh, in a short time from now. You know, he's using the excuse me, the, he's using the fancier brands, but yeah, it's just amazing. And really quickly, I noticed on one channels the other night it, showing to consumers where they can shop. You know, you go to Aldi for this, you go to Shoprite for that, you go to Kroger's for this. I mean, it's just mesmerizing for the average consumer and also by extension for the overall economy. Been a great episode, uh, episode 26. And if listeners have any questions or comments, please email us at podcast at odncap.com. Dick and Matt, thank you for your insights and thought-provoking comments and analysis. And until next week, episode 27, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.